Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. In 2003, East Carolina University named its College of Liberal Arts the Thomas Harriet College of Arts and Sciences. This was in part because Thomas Harriet had been deeply involved in the first English colony in North America, sited on Roanoke Island in modern North Carolina, and because, as an adventurer, anthropologist, astronomer, author, cartographer, ethnographer, explorer, geographer, historian, linguist, mathematician, naturalist, navigator, oceanographer, philosopher, planner, scientist, surveyor, versifier, and teacher, there was hardly an area of not only the ancient but the modern liberal arts into which Harriet did not at least glance. It is not going too far to say that wherever Thomas Harriet was during his lifetime, there was a College of Arts and Sciences. Robin Adrianrod has written a new and complete biography of this amazing man, one which gives full attention to his mathematical and scientific achievements, as well as his involvement in the circle of Sir Walter Raleigh and the first English attempts to colonize the New World. Robin Adrianrod, thanks to welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you, Alan. It's great to be here. So, um, <laughs> Thomas Harriet, it might sound to people that um, I slightly exaggerated. Um, I was reading from East Carolina University's description of Harriet's uh, achievements and accomplishments. It seems a slight exaggeration uh, that all those things, uh, all those terms are applied to Harriet, and yet the unbelievable truth is that it's not. That's right. I mean, especially if you say uh, he at least glanced into some of them, yeah, um, like oceanog oceanography and so on. But no, he was extraordinary in the breadth. I mean, you know, the term Renaissance man. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, they did have a. Uh, there was a tendency to have a, a broad uh, interest and um, uh, of certain scholars. But my goodness, he was. <laughs> he he really <laughs> took the cake, didn't no, he? No, he did. And when you. Uh pointed out at one point, and I hadn't realized that his Latin and Greek was of, well, it, it's not that surprising given his accomplishments as really an extraordinarily proto-linguist. We'll get to that in just a bit. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. his, that he, he was also friends with Chapman. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, who was at the time then translating uh, Homer, Keats, Keats's uh, famous, you know, lines written on reading Chapman's uh, Homer. Um, should give people an indication of who Chapman was. I mean, really, there was there was just it's just incredible the the range of his curiosity. I think more than anything. yeah, yeah, yeah. Because as as you know, he was um, a, a co consultant on the Greek yeah. um, to help Chapman in that translation. So the, the first I mean, that'll <laughs> yeah, that's just it's just it's dizzy among other things. Uh, and we'll yes, get, we'll get to those many other things now. How did you? How did you come across Harriet? Uh, and you have, uh, I know of Harriet as a historical figure. Um, you are coming at uh, Harriet from really a history of mathematics perspective. Is that correct? Or Yeah. Um, my background was mathematics and, and the history. And, in you know, because he, he nobody knew really much about him, and well, I'm sure we'll talk about this uh, in more about, detail soon. Let's talk soon, about it now. Yeah. But, 
Yeah, but I, I, I had just heard little snippets. Yeah. Um, he, he'd always be a sort of like a footnote in the history of maths, mm-hmm. you know, like somebody who knew, knew something about him. And then I read somewhere, I think it was um, Derek Whiteside who, who knew a lot about Newton and mm-hmm. um, other uh, his, his, his historical um, mathematical analysis. And I think he, among others, said that Harriet was the greatest British mathematical scientist before Newton. And I was always fascinated by where Newton came from. Yeah, right. Be- because, you know, we knew about Galileo and Kepler and the, the continental predecessors of, of Newton. But I was also curious about what was going on in yes. England because that's where Newton came from. Yeah, so yeah. When, I saw, when I saw this, you know, well, this is the guy, Harriet, who's supposed to be the greatest British mathematical scientist before Newton. I had to go and find out more about him. And as and yet he has been a footnote, and that gets to a question of, mm. of sources. And it also even, I think, gets to the question of, of how one publishes just as the age of scientific publication is beginning. Yes. Uh, I gets into lots of other questions like, why Harriet didn't put dates on his notes. Um, but can you, can you explain? He only published one volume uh, in his life, uh, the, a brief and true report of the new found land of Virginia. And that was it. Um, why didn't he publish more? And where, and where are his papers? Well, the, the question of publication is attacked attracted a lot of attention from recent scholars. Sure. Um, but it seems that um, the consensus is, well, as you said, there were no journals at that time, no mm. scientific journals. People were beginning to publish um, pamphlets or booklets um, or books even. Mm-hmm. But it was not actually the norm then. There was a lot still of circulating of manuscripts amongst um, like-minded people. That was a, a common um, man, manner of um, scientific discussion mm-hmm. at that time, because the Royal Society, which was one of the one of the earliest modern um, scientific societies and its corresponding journal, didn't get going till about half a century after Harriet died. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, I think in, in a way we we assume, you know, why didn't he publish? And of course, Galileo did, and Kepler. Um, but there's also a difference in the patronage system. Um, Harriet was turned out to be very well retained uh, by his patrons, and so he he didn't need to 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 promote himself. Mm-hmm. And it also seems that temperamentally he didn't need to either. He was just so fascinated by all these things and went from one to another to another. And as you say, he didn't even date his manuscripts most of the time. I mean. One of the the fascinating things about them is that they are so they are just his working manuscripts. So you can see his thoughts as they're rushing down in all their chaos. Mm-hmm. And and unless he got a, a re- he he did date his experiments hmm. because in that he was a true experimenter and he knew that he had to replicate them. Yeah. So his experiments he certainly dated. Uh, we we should, so, we should we should date him. Um, what's what's approximately his date of birth? Uh, 1560. And he dies in 1621. 
That's right. So Galileo yeah. is still alive, and I think has yet yeah. to publish his most influential That's right. manuscripts. Um, That's right. Francis yeah. Bacon hasn't even has Francis Bacon even published his sort of scientific uh, essays in the scientific method. I don't think so. Um, no, he, he was beginning to start to um, write in, in maybe in the last ten years before yeah. Harriet died. So this is he's but, tremendously early. So he he's yeah he's a little bit older than Kepler even I believe. Um, yeah, he's about he's about ten years older than Kepler and, yeah. and about four years older than Galileo. So he's sort of yeah, um, and Galileo, as you said, didn't really get the time to do his most important works until. He was in his seventies, yes. actually. Yeah, and and uh, circumstances forced upon him the leisure. <laughs> House arrest is very productive. Very arrest, productive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whereas Harriet, and that's another side of it that Harriet, especially in the early years when he was working for Raleigh, um, was very busy working on what the patron wanted him to work on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So he didn't have the time to write up. Uh, all the, the the amazing results that he'd found. Yeah, I, and I, he did die, you know, too soon. Yeah, <laughs> I, I thought of him at, at, at various parts. Um, he is a, the a, a one man research lab and a think tank. Um, yeah, g- generating options for his patrons, um, doing experiments that are solving their 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 needs. And as you point out, there I, I, there really is a, a drift. By the 1595, he's really moving from practice to theory. So there's another change in his focus, it, would, it seems to me. And certainly, yes, and certainly to curiosity-driven science, which, which included some practice, particularly in optics yeah. um, and, and um, uh, astronomy. But his motivation then, he was freed from um, specific duties most of the time, and he was free to just think and do what took his fancy, which was wonderful. What? Uh, how many manuscript pages are there of, of Harriet's of notes? Um, around eight thousand. Oh my goodness! Mm. And and they're ama- amazingly well preserved. And where and where are they? They're now in the British Library. Mm-hmm. They were lost for one hundred and fifty years after his death. Which another? So problem. he almost. Another problem with his reputation. Yeah, that's right. I mean, he almost disappeared completely from history. If it weren't for that one slim volume on 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 so-called Virginia, mm-hmm. uh, he possibly would have disappeared disappeared completely. The um, his name lived on for the next half century, and the Royal Society, when it began, actually tried to find his manuscripts because his people had still had memories of him, or mm. they knew somebody who knew him. Yeah. And some of them had even seen uh, his work. And um, actually a posthumous book on his algebra was published by his friends, but it wasn't um, as good as it might have been <laughs> for Harriet's uh, reputation. So he was he was known uh, by that circle, but they couldn't find them, the Royal Society, and they gave up in, I don't know, about 1670, they gave up looking. Hmm. Um and then it wasn't until the 1780s that they were found. Where, and then they would donate. Where were oh, they? Oh, sorry, yeah. Where were they? Uh, well, they were at the under a, a pile of old stable accounts in in the um, in the castle that had belonged to to his former patron, the Earl of Northumberland, which <laughs> is in um, <laughs> which is down in Sussex. Huh. So yeah. And, and so they were then donated to the British Museum and they're now in the British Library. 
And there they lay unstudied for another 100 years or so, although there was a mention in the, in the biographical um, dictionary of um, uh, biographical um, science. It was a mention that the papers had been found and were in the library, and that's about it mm-hmm. until the 20th century, really. It's and it's really and then we had people like um, D. B. Quinn, um, the great historian of the sort of the early the first adventures um, to North America, yeah, and to Ireland, yeah, who was interested in Harriet because of the uh, first contact, as it were, with North America and with the mm. c- circle of Raleigh. But he wasn't. Uh, he was not a. Um, he was not a historian of science or of mathematics, and uh, it, it, you indicate that it wasn't until fairly recently that people started to really study um, that aspect of the the hardcore mathematical aspect of Harriet. Mm, yeah, Is that probably. Right? Yeah, well, well, Quinn uh, began in in uh, about the nineteen fifties, I think. Yep. And um, and around that time, it's actually amazing that there seemed to be something in the air because. Quite a number of scholars actually started to go and find the papers and have a look at them in the library around that time, um, including John Shirley, uh, an American who had uh, been uh, dean of liberal arts, I think, at in North Carolina for a while, mm-hmm. um, and um, and so bit by bit, uh, people were starting from the 1950s on to study various aspects of his work. But the, but the really, as you say, the, the hardcore maths really began only in the last two or three decades, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, how, when you uh, work with them, um, I guess there's a tremendous problem in that the fact that, and we'll get to this, is that he was developing algebraic notation um, mm. and it was his own. <laughs> it's so yeah. it we um for those of us even with the dim sort of secondary school um notion of what algebra is like um it, it's it's flummoxing to encounter a different type of notation um does he also use uh, I, at some point in one of the pages you reproduced he's writes some notes to himself in english does he also write notes to himself in greek and latin as well i mean i would imagine there's there are problems like that in trying to read uh, someone like harriet uh, yeah, he writes a lot of Latin. Uh-huh. Uh, most of it's Latin, I think. Um, so in some ways the algebra <laughs> is <laughs> once you figure out what his symbols mean, and most of them are, are, are you know, really, in, in, it's probably the best, most polished of his treatises are really the first fully symbolic algebra that we've seen and that are recognisable because he used, you know, Latin letters. Oh. Um you know, for for the unknowns, uh, he wasn't wasn't the first to do it, but he he was the first to do it consistently and to, uh, as I said, used a completely symbolic form of representing algebra, because up until then, which is quite extraordinary to think about it, it it, it was done uh, very largely verbally, so people would write out, you know, one plus you know, something equals, you know, or they uh, take the unknown and multiply it three times, you know, and that will equal. That's, that's how it was done. That seems almost, that seems, even for a historian, that seems hard, that seems almost impossible to conceive. I mean, well, I, 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 I find it hard. It, it yeah, is, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> to conceive how they, <clears throat> how the ancients actually achieved as much knowledge as they did, because <clears throat> we now think symbolically, and Harriet 
seems to really have thought in his very, um, you know, bone, so to speak, thought symbolically when he was doing maths. And it, it shows. You point out and to that, me. And of course. Go on, sorry. Yeah, go. No. Yeah, well, I was going to say, it, 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 it becomes a much more economical way of thinking when you do it that way. Yes. Um, and so uh, we can actually read his manuscripts, his algebraic ones. There's a couple of symbols that are no longer used, but mostly they're very recognizable. Oh. You point out in the book, and you point out in an email to me, that this really stems from his actual first encounter with North America uh, in many ways. You can see roots of this um, movement towards symbolic representation. Um, so we should talk about how he got there, and uh, and that brings us to Walter Raleigh. Um who was Walter Raleigh, um, and how did Harriet get attached to him? Well, Raleigh is a fascinating character, of course. Um, he had a spectacular rise at court, which, which caused him some enemies because he was a mere commoner. Um, his background, were, his family were mostly Devonshire farmers and mariners, but his older half-brother had been a, an explorer, and in 1583, he'd, he'd claimed, in inverted commas, <laughs> Newfoundland for England. Um, and he, uh, he'd had his sights set on exploring the east coast of what's now the US. Um, and Raleigh had, in fact, sailed on one of those early ventures, but they were not able to get there. They had problems with sailing because, you know, it was an era of sailing and all you had was wind and a decent boat and a, a bit of a compass and a few very rudimentary instruments and a lot of uh, need for astronomy to sail by the stars, and which, of, which, which is where Harriet came into it for Raleigh. Raleigh did have a particular aptitude for, for organising, for battles and um, sea ventures, and uh, he was also um, gifted and charismatic and tall and handsome and um, so he, he eventually, uh, you know, the court took notice of him and eventually he charmed the queen herself, Elizabeth I. And, um, and so with that came honours and money and he was able to be a patron. And so he had the idea that he wanted to um, lay, lay a stake in the new world for England and to have a trading base there. And so he needed somebody to train him and his prospective captains um, and, and other key um, navigators who needed, um, who needed it, um, how to read, how to navigate using the stars. Mm -hmm. And so that's where Harriet came in. No one actually knows how they um, met, um, but it's certainly known that, that they moved into um, a house in London together. Mm -hmm. Um, in 1580, or at the end of 1583, and um, Harriet uh, taught the prospe prospective captains of of the reconnaissance trip that was going to go and find a place to um, to settle in 1584. And it's we um, now sort of assume that um, sea captains of the age. We've seen the the movie or the uh, read the books. They they're shooting the sun and taking sights and all, but that stuff is all. That's right. It's all yeah. new. I mean, it's it's it, Harriet is in a way Harriet's one of the people that at least in England 
is propagating that is creating that body of knowledge for people to actually then learn. It, in some ways, it's very ancient because, yes. as you say, people had been doing it for a long time. I guess what you could say, what Harriet was doing was um, making it more accurate. Mm-hmm. He was improving what was known. So um, astronomy, uh, mathematical astronomy was um, written up, the, what the ancients knew, by Ptolemy in uh, about the 4th century. Uh, no, the, the 2nd century. Mm-hmm. And that he was still uh, the authority, um, and that required um, a, a picture of the stars as being sprinkled across a celestial sphere, and then you worked out their positions um, by taking angles. And that's why you needed these instruments, the cross staves, that you'd point at the star, and then there'd be a scale on it mm-hmm. that you could read off off the angles, and the scales were you know, they were scaled using trigonometry and other things. So that was known. But what Harriet did was, well, first of all, teach the captains the, the basics of astronomy and, you know, where things were and um, how you, you know, what the required angles were that you needed to take and how to use them. But then he updated certain of the, of the, of the tables and the, the, the measurements that were catalogued. And he showed how to use the instruments more accurately, hmm. um, which was which was interesting. I mean, amazing, really. I mean, it shows some of a lot about his his uh, perfectionist nature and his eye for detail, because the sorts of things that he was correcting for were like when you put this cross stuff that you've seen in movies, where they hold this big thing that looks like a cross between a um, a, a big sort of protractor hanging off it and a, yeah. and a and a, and a staff that you align up at the stars, um, and then you move a transom along and, and position it when you get the, the right angle with the, the, the horizon. Well, for a start, when you're on, the, on board a ship, you're actually above the real horizon. Hmm. So, so, so <laughs> you know, Harriet worked out, having to do some sophisticated trigonometry, um, what the real angle, how to convert from a given height of, of, of the ship above sea level, what you, when you take a, a reading, what is its actual reading as it would appear in a geometrical drawing of, of the celestial sphere? So given the and size... And he was the first... Yeah. Sorry? Given the size of those ships, he's correcting for like a 10-foot dis- dis- difference yeah. above sea level. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and another one was um, if you put it... Uh, you know the, the, the phenomenon of parallax mm-hmm. where if you, you know, you... You close one eye and then another, and you look at uh, you know something close by. Well, it seems to shift position. Well, the same parallax happens, albeit you know it's much smaller. But nonetheless, Harriet felt that this was um, a very important uh, error. If you put the staff at a different spot on your cheek each time, hmm. so he because actually the the scale was calculated as if it were right up to the eye not on the side of the cheek or the bridge of the nose or whatever. So Harriet worked out an average distance of where the various captains that he knew liked to place it and worked out a correction factor so they could all adjust it. I mean, that kind of thing. It, it, it's so simple in one way, but he appears to be the first ever to have um, 
actually tabulated and work this out. So, we so can, it's that kind of thing. Yeah, so we can see where um, his his mind is going. I mean, this is this is the foundation um, of inquiry that will lead to his later um, yeah. work, work on the refraction. I mean, everything, really. And yeah, also, yeah. But then he goes on the second voyage to what we now call Roanoke Island. Um, and yeah. he's there for a year, a little under a year. He has a laboratory there. Uh, he's got a yeah. hut. He's doing chemical. He's doing assay work. He's doing other things. He's doing experimentation while he's there. And he's acting as a sort of proto-anthropologist and ethnographer. Um, and he arrives having already um, begun work on an Algonquin dictionary, right? I mean, if I've got my dates right, he's already, by talking to some natives that had come over with the first expedition, they'd come back to England, he's mm. been working on a linguistic a system of linguistics that's right this is amazing i mean uh manteo and wanchesi uh, the, the 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 reconnaissance voyage was just two ships and they 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 didn't know exactly where they were going they knew roughly the the, the latitude they wanted to go and they had to choose that wisely because of <laughs> they didn't want to be encroached on the spaniards florida or the canadians um uh, the the french uh, uh territory around the St. Lawrence River and so on. So they knew they had a rough idea of where they might try to land, um, but they didn't you know, know exactly where, where, where it was going to be suitable. Anyway, they happened to land um, on, on the, the, the Carolina banks, and uh, there they were eventually noticed by, by the local people and were eventually invited to Roanoke, what we call Roanoke Island, by the chief, Wingina, and they established very good relations. And so one hopes that Wanchesi and Manteo went back willingly um, and uh, and indeed Harriet seems to have um, learned their language, Algonquin, um, and taught them English before he set out with the first colony. And, 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 and it's amazing because getting to this eye for detail and for symbolic thinking that you were mentioning before. Mm -hmm. um, so he not only learns the basics of the language, um, and you can see that in, in, in the report that Barlow, one of the captains of that reconnaissance trip, wrote up for Raleigh. Uh, there's so much detail in there that, given that they were only there for a few weeks, um, must have been uh, pieced together later by conversations with Manteo and Wanchesi once the, the language barrier had been broken down. Hmm. Um, and, but, but then Harriet's not just content with that. He, he decides, well, this is so fascinating, this, this new and, and, and wonderful language that sounds like nothing else. How about I try to work out a way to represent those sounds? So he worked out really what's the first complete, um, first known complete phonetic system. Uh, three, um, and three, he, 300 years ahead of any other, well, more than 300 years ahead of any other system. Uh, right. Yeah, there had been an attempt um, by a guy called John Hart, if I remember rightly, mm. to begin to try to, uh, he was concerned by the different British dialects, not right. to mention yes. Welsh. And so he'd <laughs> made a start on, on a similar type of thing. It's not known whether Harriet knew about this. It was about 10 years before. But but he certainly hadn't done the complete phonetics. And Harriet, what Harriet hoped that he had got 
all possible sounds that could be made by humans <laughs> in human speech. <laughs> that he'd got a he'd, he'd, he'd articulated all those sounds, and um, and that and he developed his own symbol. He didn't want to use Latin letters or you know European letters because he wanted it to be truly universal, which is very interesting actually, yeah, isn't it? It really is. Um, so he, he developed these strange squiggles, and I have to say. Before I, I'd read some of the scholarly work on the deciphering of that, I came across them when I was looking at his manuscripts, and there's this very sober-looking manuscript but with this extraordinary scrawl in very big letters in a flourish on the, the title page of one of them. And I thought, my goodness, you know, I knew <laughs> that, that he was a friend of John Dee, uh -huh. who was a, a very interesting transitional figure at that time because he, he had a foot in the magical world and a foot in the modern scientific world. And I thought, well, maybe he, <laughs> he's into spells and invocations too, mm -hmm. Harriet. But anyway, it turns out that it was his signature written in his um, his own unique phonetic <laughs> script. <laughs> it's interesting so, you mentioned D here because, of course, D was interested in those sorts of things as well, wasn't it? I mean, his, his fascination with the language of the angels – um, mm. And then uh, a little bit later, John Wilkins or Wilkin, I forget, um, is uh, is interested in the universal language, which um, some people have seen as um, the uh, preliminary to uh, machine language, to binary coding, and so on. Um, but mm. uh, there's a fascination with achieving some sort of basically the the uh, for them uh, there was always a, there's a theological bent to it that it was the language of before the tower before the Tower yeah. of Babel, um, but that sort of the Ur language, which, you know, some thought of as the language of the angels. Mm. Um, yeah, Harriet didn't appear to get into that. No. He did He did read widely. He read um, um, the early 16th century Magus um, Trithemius, mm -hmm. who, 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 um, who was interested in that kind, in, in sort of secret codes and, and, and having um, a, a magical kind of secret language for, for codes to get spells. And uh, it's thought that maybe Harriet was getting ideas for his, <laughs> for his squiggles from that. Yeah. But he seems to have been a very he, – he was certainly eclectic in his reading. Yeah. And um, he, he certainly um, engaged in some alchemical experiments, um, although he doesn't seem to have been concerned with the magical side, you know, the, the turning lead into gold or <clears throat> speaking with angels or uh, as far as we know, mm -hmm. uh, all we have is, is what he wrote. It's got 8,000 uh, pages. Sure, there must be something. Yeah, there. you'd think, wouldn't you? There's yeah. not much. It's, most, it's almost entirely um, mathematical so, and, 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 and physical, so you know, physics. Could you just draw, I mean, I, just underline this connection of the symbolic notation of linguistics to sort of, what he'll do in algebra. I mean, this this is what you're saying is that this is a man who sees the world um, as in terms of reducing it to symbolic representation. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I'd say reducing, but certainly yeah, using... Bad, bad verb. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah it's, it's, we've got to be careful these days with how we... <laughs> yeah. But anyway, um, he certainly... Uh, saw that as a, as, a, as a useful way of seeing the world and he certainly did that for the language um, and and um, and then as I said he 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 wasn't the first I mean 
as I said to you, for, for most of its, its thousand, couple of thousands of years of oh, even more, two or three thousand year history, algebra had been done virtually verbally. Mm-hmm. Um, then, uh, you know, maybe a century or so before Harriet's time, people started using a shorthand, like they'd put P for plus and mm-hmm. um, so on. Um, but it was a sort of shorthand symbolism in general, not true true symbols that took on a life of their own. It was a shorthand for the words. Mm-hmm. Um, but Harriet seems to have been the first. Uh, and then um, a, a French algebraist, um, Viette, had had made a very big step by deciding to use, I think it was vowels for the unknown numbers. He used capital letters mm-hmm. and um, consonants for um, parameters. Hmm. But he still wrote... Uh, oh, and he used the plus sign. That had been that had first been printed in a very early on in the printing era, um, although it, it, it didn't quite have the the arithmetical meaning. That that didn't really start to take off until the 16th century. Um, but even then, it wasn't always uh, universally used. But but getting there. Hmm. So Viet used that, but he wrote equals. You know, wrote out equals. Um, a contemporary of Harriet's, Robert Record in uh, uh, about the mid-1500s, had actually written the, the, uh, a sort of version of the equal sign, but that doesn't seem and, – and published a book on it, but it was a, a, an obscure um, book. Uh, very, very interesting, but um, I don't know how widely read it was, certainly outside of England. Um, and Harriet uh, took that idea and, and uh, used that all the time and – uh, popularized it, and he also invented the, the symbols that we use now for less than and huh. greater than. Um, and he used lowercase letters as we use now, not Viet's capital letters. And so, for example, he would say, um, um, and he often used n, which is a number that we also use a lot. Yes. N, particularly for an integer. And this is very important in some of his his later work, which I'll get to in a sec, but. So he would write n for the unknown number, and if he wanted to square n, he'd write n, n. Hmm. And if he wanted to cube it, he'd write n, n, n. Hmm. So he didn't, he, he even got rid of just n times with the cross symbol, because yeah. the times um, symbol. Uh, so Descartes was the one who actually used the index form. He would write n cubed rather than n squared. Um, but Harriet's version was. Um, just as transparent, although not as economical. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so that's why we can we can totally understand and read his his uh, manuscript, most of his manuscripts. He had his own symbols for sign and cos, so that took scholars some time to decipher. Mm-hmm. But um, but other than that, uh, and he used Roman uh, in, uh, Hindu Arabic numerals, um, or which which were not. Why not universal in Europe then? They were getting common. I mean, most mathematicians would have used them, but certain account books from the time still use Roman numerals. So, you know, it was at that sort of trans transition time, which is why I find Harriet's period so exciting. Yes. It really is. Everything's up for grabs. No, and you can see it changing and you know, people having a go at this and that, and some things get take on and some things don't. Yeah, well, you certainly bring that out. It's uh, it's intellectually thrilling to to read about him and 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 the people around him and what they're doing. Um, yeah. and, and his, thank you. And in his case, 
it's combined uh it's completely and sometimes tragically intermingled with um external events uh war and state and all the rest of it um, yeah so he the roanoke expeditions end badly uh in many ways yeah. in many ways i mean his his sojourn ends badly um there's a basically a massacre of the uh, local indians um and these troubles go on in two more voyages I, if i'm uh, there are four voyages in total not counting mm. not counting the other ones that try to find out what happened to the lost colony uh that mm. was inspired so much romantic imagination uh and, yeah. and and really that is because of the war with spain in 1588 the armada and all that uh and then uh i'm just going to work through briskly this this stuff raleigh falls from uh the queen's favor for a period uh which hurts harriet's um own status and then there's a sort of gradual transfer from raleigh's patronage to the patronage of the earl of northumberland um, mm. so harriet you had said earlier um he doesn't have a need to publish in the sense that he does rather well in terms of pensions um yeah yeah and raleigh obviously yeah. really I mean, he's one of He's the only person in Raleigh's will of, what, 1598, the only person in Raleigh's will who is not a member of, who's an executor who's not a member of the family. Uh, he, yeah. He always does Raleigh's accounts, I believe, up until the end. Yeah. So yeah. they're very, obviously, they're very close. Uh, and yet mm. he's also getting an additional powerful patron in the Earl of Northumberland. Um, That's got, right. Like all the, that in the right order? <laughs> Yeah, and it's interesting um, that the Earl of Northumberland and Raleigh had become friends um, in the 15, nine, maybe maybe late 1580s, mm -hmm. um, and uh, they they spent a lot of time gambling together. And uh, accounts from Northumberland still survive, and they say, you know, oh, lost ten pounds playing cards with Raleigh, um, <laughs> and so on. Um, Harriet obviously played because there's one entry that says, um, oh, I lost a shilling tossing coins with Harriet. So Harriet was obviously not a big better. <laughs> um, but, but this is quite fascinating to me because um, Harriet became part of the circle because he was not just an ordinary employee, as, as you mentioned. You know, he, he really became a, a, a close friend of, of Raleigh and so he's invited to the social gatherings with mm -hmm. Raleigh's new friend, the Earl, and the Earl is quite fascinated by by Raleigh. Although he's a gambler and a womanizer and a high liver at that time, he also um, he's also fascinated by science as Raleigh was, and so he he really takes a shine to to Harriet, who's a few years older than him, um, and and eventually, um, yes, with Raleigh um, having his own troubles. Um, it seems to have been a mutual agreement because Harriet kept his room at Durham House for quite some time. Mm -hmm. That was Ra Raleigh's sort of uh, court. That was Raleigh's, yes. London that House. Was a, yeah. That was his London house, which was owned by the Queen, uh, and she had uh, given it to him for his use, um, and that's where he and, and um, Harriet had first uh, shared lodgings together and had done the training for, for the Roanoke Ventures. But by about 1597, um, basically Northumberland says, look, 
come here, I'm going to give you a great pension. You don't have to do anything. I just want an original scholar. I just want to mentor an original scholar. And uh, that's, a, that's an offer too good to refuse. And um, as you said, the Roanoke Ventures are not exactly working out the way Raleigh had, had planned. And Raleigh still, uh, Harriet still helps him on his, on his ventures, um, including going to South America. Mm-hmm. So he's still there, but he, um, yeah, as you said, he starts well, to become does, part of Northumberland's household. It does free up some time because he's beginning to become more um, what we might say pure science. So now, mm-hmm. he, now he's got this foundation of of uh, his navigational art, and now, but this is this is now leading him to in, really interesting questions. Uh, about angles, he's now able to apply his. Um, he's now able to tackle things like the the Mercator problem. Could you explain the the Mercator problem uh, briefly and and um, how he tackled it? It's really, <laughs> it's really hard in a podcast. Um, yeah, it's really hard. Diagrams. It, it's really hard in a book without <laughs> diagrams. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, basically, um, when you're sailing in a say, if you want to set a course northeast particular direction um, and so you, you travel on the surface of the earth which is curved so actually what you're traveling in is a curved line and they called that a rum line and if you kept going northeast you'd actually spiral around and around the, the earth if you kept going forever yeah so it actually traced out a three-dimensional spiral which later got the name of loxodrome and um a Portuguese mathematician had first uh, discovered that aspect of um, the of the spiral that it would that the rum line would spiral around as a as a infinite spiral. Um, in a again in the in the um, mid sixteenth century, um, and he but he but he but he it wasn't a very popular idea this theory that. Nunes, this guy Nunes was trying to do, and and it's so difficult to work out the properties of this curve that he gave up. He said, uh, "I have spent so much time labouring on this; it's bad for my health. I, I can't do any more." And Harriet's the one that actually ended up being the first to study the properties of that that three dimensional curve. Meanwhile, back to Mercator, the, what Mercator had done in 1569 was to create a map on which those those rum lines would actually look straight the way they do intuitively. You know, a mariner who doesn't have uh, the ability to understand three-dimensional spirals and the mathematics of it just sees he's going in a straight line, northeast. <laughs> yeah. And so Mercator came up with this brilliant idea of how to make um, gradations in the spacing of the latitude lines um, so that the rum lines did look like a straight line, and um, I don't think I don't think they're popular in classrooms anymore because part of that meant that you also had to spread out the lat- the longitude lines. Yeah. You know, on a globe, um, the lines of longitude all meet at the poles; yeah. they spiral round. Um, but on the Mercator map, they're they're equally spaced. They're spread out, so you know the the the, the northern countries and the South Pole all look very large, when, whereas they're not really so. But the secret 
of that straight line map, which is still very uh, useful for navigation, of course. Mm -hmm. um, Mercator didn't tell anybody how we did it. Um, and so the first thing that, that Harriet set himself to do was work out, well, what was the scaling? And he worked it out. Um, and then the Merc Mercator maps were not actually common at that time, partly because no one knew about them, <laughs> knew about the, how to make them. So there were a, a, a few people that were trying to find the secret. John Dee was, was one of them because he'd been in correspondence with Mercator around that time and he'd made tables. So instead of a map, the early um, uh, navigators at that time had tables, tables of meridional parts they were called, mm -hmm. and that was a way that you could use that Mercator stretch factor to um, work out changes in latitude and longitude along a run line. So and to do that, oh, sorry, yeah. Yeah, so, so by solving this the Mercator problem, you can reproduce Mercator maps, which is very nice. You can create, yeah. you can create better tables of navigation, which is perhaps even better. Yeah. Um, how does this drive forward, um, I hesitate to say pure mathematics, but how does this drive forward mathematics uh, by doing this? Well, in the, uh, what you needed to do to find the latitude and longitude changes along a run line was the stretch factor of, um, the, on the Mercator map, which you needed the, uh, to do that, was uh, related to the um, secant of the latitude at any time. So you had to add up secants um, for angles of latitude that was increasing not just degree by degree but minute by minute. And they had to be added up by hand, which is what Harriet did. I mean, this is unbelievable that you have to work out <laughs> this formula and then apply it. Oh, you had to work out the formula in the first place. And then to get the tables, you had to actually using your hand, you know, using long multiplication by hand, using a quill pen, yeah. which is hard enough. <laughs> no pencil either. Just, not even a pencil, no rubbing out, that you had to work out these incredible calculations minute by minute. And Harriet um, appears to have been the first to have got a reason. Dee had a go uh, and uh, did a reasonable job, and Harriet appears to have been the first to have got a complete reasonably accurate table. Um, then, however, he was always looking for ways to simplify these kinds of repetitive calculations. And this is a sort of one example where practical applications can drive pure maths. And this had been done uh, in Ptolemy's time, way back in, uh, you know, about 150 uh, of the Common Era. Um, it, there were, um, he, he actually did trigonometric tables and Viet also did a new trigonometric table, which, which had the same problem. You had to work out angles, you know, the values of sines and cosines and secants for angles in increasing minute by minute, um, and they all had to do it by hand. So they were looking for ways to do it, and um, uh, those who can remember their high school trigonom trigonometry will remember some of those, um, you know, trigonometric formulae that give you a shortcut, mm -hmm. you know, sine 2 theta, for example. If you know sine theta and cos theta, you can work out sine 2 theta, and then if you know that, you can work out sine 4 theta and so on. gives you an easier way to um, work it out. So those things had long been known, um, but it led Harriet into looking for more ways, um, and uh, this this ended up 
well, actually what he ended up doing when he when he discovered the um, how to look at the the whole spiraling run line, um, among the many other things that he that he did, was to find an algorithm that in, in effect is the integral of the secant along that line, and that's the way we would do it today. He wasn't using calculus as such, but he he found the equivalent algorithm. Huh. So. You know, and and he was driven. And you mentioned binary numbers before. Yeah. He also he also he discovered a whole heap of stuff, including the arithmetic of binary numbers, which he appears to have been the first to do. Bacon used a, a binary code, like he, he had letters. Um, you know, A would be A A A A A, B would be A A A A B, uh, and so on. Um, and A A A A A B and A A and BB and so on. So he used a binary system, but Harriet appears to have been the first one to actually uh, carry out the operations of arithmetic and subtraction and multiplication using binary numbers. Hmm. Uh, and that was, and he only came upon that because, again, he was looking for ways to simplify um, actually huge powers of numbers. So he thought, oh, well, if I break them up into binaries and then I can multiply the, <laughs> the powers and add the indices, oh, you know, I can do it that way. <laughs> so he did so much um, just trying to simplify to save himself adding up all these kinds of, you know, um, trigonometric values uh, minute by minute. Yes, the sort of brute force adding and yeah. subtracting, yeah. Um, yeah, and so he wanted to find cleverer ways. I, I was astonished. Yeah, I was astonished to see that he also. I mean, and this perhaps is related to the gambling you, you suggest um, that he was also um, right there at pro with probability as well. Um, yeah. Yet, yet further, I mean, we can't uh, attribute him to any influence on Pascal or the later um, Fermat or any of the later um, thinkers because these once again are not published or shared. But he's thinking. Yeah. He's thinking about probability. That's right, and um, I suspect it did come from those gambling sessions. Um, there were actually a couple of Italian mathematicians who it's, – it's very interesting because the ancients had been interested in combinations, which is what you need to understand, you know, probability too. You know, if mm -hmm. I'm going to throw um, two dice, you know, what are all the possible combinations of the, the, the uppermost number that can happen? And – but but it's interesting that it wasn't really connected with gambling and probabilities until the 16th century. And Tartaglia and Cardano um, made a start on that. I don't know whether Harriet knew about it um, or not, but his manuscripts certainly show him appear, appear to show him st starting from scratch because he's got you know just just as if you were learning at school. He says, "All right, how many ways will?" How many ways will two dice land? So he writes, you know, uh, one, 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 two, one, three, one, four, yeah, one, yeah. Da, 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 you know, two, one, two, one, and, and you know, finally to six, six. And then he repeats all that for, for three dice and four dice and five dice, and he writes them all out by hand. So clearly he's feeling his way. But that then leads him to a better understanding of um, combination theory and how it fits with. Um, binomial numbers and the binomial theorem, again, which was known, uh, and the Pascal triangle, which was which had been known for a few hundred years, actually. Mm. People people understood how they did it rhetorically. I don't know, but they did understand the um, 
the way that those binomial coefficients, that's the coefficients if you expand, you know, A plus B squared, what what's the coefficient of A, or a plus b to the n actually any any power um, going going so on so you start with a plus b squared cubed fourth and so on so the ancients sort of did the first half dozen or so but this gets back to what I was saying about Harriet's um, use of letters for for um, that enabled him to generalize because he appears to be the first to have thought in terms of okay let's then take an nth term. You know, we want to see where this pattern is going. So it's okay. People had already knew um, how binomial coefficients worked in the Pascal triangle, down to about six or seven layers, um, but they didn't generalize it. And once you generalize, you can find all sorts of other applications. And Harriet actually did. He, after writing out all these various laborious prob probability combinations. He then linked it to the Pascal triangle and then wrote in his notation, algebraic notation, the nth term. Hmm. And this proved incredibly useful to him later on when he was working out um, his proto-calculus hmm. because he needed infinitesimally. You know, what happens if you keep going infinitesimally, uh, if, you, if you cut down to an infinitesimal jump or if you keep the series going for an infinitesimal, an infinite, infinite number of times? What happens to the nth term as n approaches infinity, as we would say today? And really, he was the first to, to write it in that way. He didn't get limits and calculus, uh, of course. They weren't, well, calculus algorithms were, were, were found, found in their generality only um, you know, in, the, in the 17th century by Leibniz and Newton. Mm -hmm. And limit theory was only made you know, rigorous in the 19th century. But he certainly had the idea and was able to apply it to all sorts of things, including compound interest, compounding, you know, instantaneously, and um, as I said, adding up the lengths of uh, little infinitesimal segments to make a complete spiral, and therefore calculating its length and mm -hmm. this, uh, all this, sorts of things. This is what you mean by proto calculus. This is that. This, yeah. This is what he yeah. Did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's, it's it's such a bold statement for some when the, when they hear it. I want to make sure that uh, we un, we understand what they're what uh, they mean, uh, what you mean by that. Um, and yet he, we just can't tell. I mean, it seems highly unlikely that he had any influence on Newton or any of Newton's teachers, other than by reputation. I mean, they weren't they weren't reading this stuff. It was lost. Um, yes, it seems. John Wallace, who was probably the best English mathematician before Newton, in the generation just before Newton, mm -hmm. I mean. Um, so he was sort of between Harriet and Newton. Um, and he certainly knew of Harriet. In oh, fact, okay. he'd, been yeah, he'd been introduced. I think I mentioned earlier that his disciples, um, his you know, friends and disciples, did put together um, an algebra book, which yeah. they prou proudly um, said is the you know first symbolic, fully symbolic algebra. But they they missed a lot of things. For example, they didn't include complex numbers and negative roots in a consistent way. They didn't include complex numbers at all because those in those days um, they were seen they were known about, but they didn't seem to be real, <laughs> which 
which is why we call them imaginary, <laughs> the square roots of negative numbers. Mm -hmm. um, but in Harriet's manuscripts, he certainly had a much more sophisticated understanding than appears in, in the, the book that was published. Nevertheless, that's the one that really uh, influenced John Wallace, uh, taught him analytic uh, geometry, if you like. That's how to visualise geometry in using algebraic language. Mm -hmm. Descartes is, is often seen as the, the, the creator of that, but um, Viet to some extent, and especially Harriet, really were doing it uh, several decades earlier. And so Wallace was definitely influenced by Harriet. Um, he did not uh, – there was a, a wonderful little treatise that Harriet did on interpolation, which is another of the shortcuts that he – he devised to um, help him with his, those tedious calculations. Um, it's actually a, a linear form of it, a simple linear form had been long known to the ancients. And that's, for example, if you, if you, if you want to work out um, a value for sine, say you know sine one degree and sine two degree, and you want to find sine half degree, you can kind of use the equation of a straight line. You can assume that the sine equation is – uh, sine function looks, the sine graph looks like a straight line and uh, estimate it that way. That was linear interpolation. Yeah. Well, Harriet appears to have been the first to have done a nonlinear exact algebraic form of interpolation, which was then in the 17th century adapted by, um, uh, well, Taylor, for, for example, to become Taylor series. Um, which is a way of representing functions through um, sums, simple sums of polynomials. So a complicated function you can represent as a simple um, function. Um, but in, this interpolation also enabled you to kind of exactly estimate um, a value in between two given values through the formula that Harriet had. And I'm, it's not sure whether... Wallace saw that. A number of mathematicians did because the manuscript was circ circulated. Um, and then, uh, but Wallace's, when he rediscovered it, it didn't seem to have a lot to do with, with Harriet's. Hmm. And Harriet's, uh, mathematicians, the scholars that have studied it in the most depth, seem to think that Harriet's was better. <laughs> and that Newton then uh, appeared not to have known about Harriet's at all, which is which is very sad in a way because he his form was very close to Harriet's, which is quite interesting. And then he developed it more yeah. more rigorously. There's actually a lot of things that Harriet uh, discovered that Newton then took and and developed. Well, he didn't take them from Harriet because he, he didn't know, know about them. But Newton yeah. independently rediscovered yes, and I, then developed further. Like for example, and we. Way over time now, I think. But uh, when I need, I have to talk about optics, and one <laughs> of the thing, right. one of the things that Newton does sort of recapitulate Harriet on is is a lot of opti of Harriet's optical thought. Am, am I right in saying that? I mean, Harriet's work on refraction and rainbows and it, yeah, it's yeah. Well, um, dispersion in particular. Yeah, um, Descartes uh, published on the rainbow. Um, but he didn't get the idea of dispersion. He got the idea of how a rainbow is formed, which Harriet had had beforehand, um, the geometry of it, if you like, you know, um, the fact that you need refraction and reflection inside a raindrop to form the, um, 
the uh, the rainbow and that you need uh, you need to understand that there's a bunch of rays that will be reflected back to you and and sort of uh, reinforce each other to make that bright band in the sky. Well, Harriet appears to have been the first to have got that, but Descartes also got it later and published it. So Newton would have known that. But Descartes didn't understand where the colour came from. He understood why it was formed by reflection and refraction, but he didn't understand colour. And Newton is the one that's credited with discovering, you know, the wonderful image of the, the light coming, the light beam coming into the prism and mm-hmm. leaving in a rainbow. But Harriet actually had discovered that about 70 years earlier and had measured the different angles. He'd actually shown. He didn't get the whole spectrum the way Newton did, and he didn't have as careful um, records and and experimental write-ups as as Newton did. But he actually, his manuscripts show that he he got two or three colours and show that they had different indices of refraction, you know, that they bent in different ways. Each colour bent slightly differently. Um, And and so that was remarkable. It is. And and also remarkable, and uh, I think it was controversial, and it's now not, uh, is that Harriet got himself one of those Dutch telescopes. Um, And right at the same time that Galileo was peering through his, and uh, Harriet was uh, having a look through his own. Yeah, that's right. And doing things like uh, mapping the moon just a little bit before before, um, Galileo did. It appears to be that way, yeah. Yeah. They were certainly independent of each other, and it appears to be slightly before. Harriet appears to have been just slightly before Galileo, but uh, the, I guess the key thing is they were they were independent um, and around the same time, which is which is remarkable because is. that's that's you know Galileo is seen as the as the one, and not only that Galileo is famous for improving those Dutch uh, telescopes, but so did Harriet. Harriet made his own as well. Yeah, uh, it was like a four power was the first one he had, or two power. I think the first one was six. I don't know okay. whether that's the one that he bought or whether he'd made that from uh, uh, having heard or seen a Dutch one. It's not clear, of course, because he didn't leave great yeah. detailed notes. We just know that he did record that it was six times uh, uh, the normal magnification. And then later he got up to 50 times. Yeah. And he actually got so excited about this that he employed a, a lab assistant who huh. was an expert glassmaker and um, – uh, he he helped make the lenses and uh, telescopes, and, he, and they apparently had a great partnership. Yeah, and, and he also observed sunspots, and because he's Harriet, yeah. he was able to demonstrate solar rotation and I think measure it. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, others did it around the same time, Galileo and a couple of others. But uh, Harriet's again seems to have been independent. The sunspots and the uh, rotation and seems to have been the most accurate because some of the things I've been saying, you know, even like correcting for how high above the, the <laughs> horizon you are on a ship shows he had the most extraordinary eye for detail. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so, um, yeah. Um, the, um, I hadn't, did he and Galileo did not correspond. No, as far as we know, no, as far as you know, no. he and Kepler did, which is yeah a true interesting meeting of the minds. And I was, I, I think I had read this elsewhere, but one of Harriet's served disciples, uh, Lower, that's that's his that's his family name, Lower, yeah, uh, yeah. actually chides Harriet for not having let 
Kepler or the world know that um, that years before Kepler, Harriet had suggested to Lower that the planets moved in elliptical orbit? That's right. Which I think yeah. is just a crazy. Uh, it is another, amazing. Another amazing. I mean, yeah. I mean, he didn't actually use the word ellipse, yeah. but he said when you you told me the 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 um the this is when Kepler published this wonderful breakthrough. Yes. Uh, which was an extraordinary work that Kepler did, and there's no evidence that that Harriet had um, such detailed observations that would lead to that, and so probably he had worked out from his own observations that circles did, did not give the right values for where the planets were located. Um, but, and he did a lot of study on the mathematics of ellipses. That's there in Harriet's manuscripts. So it's it's quite likely that he had uh, at least guessed he had that hypo- they were elliptical. He had a hypothesis, but Ke- Kepler, yeah. Kepler had, what, decades of astronomical data backing him that's up. right from Tycho yeah and from, yeah and from his own work um yeah well it, it seems a, a shame to break away from this but we must um what <laughs> what what's the one thing we we uh we should have talked about that Harriet did that that we haven't um oh, what would you like to yeah, what would you like particularly like to emphasize um his uh we talked I think we touched on how he um the ways in which he, um, his 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 process of discovery, but you might want to emphasize that. Yeah, I mean, I think Harriet is so interesting, as I said before, uh, for being uh, a a really really fascinating guide to that time before science had become modern and before the world had actually, and. He had such an, an inquiring mind, and he seemed to be so such an independent mind. He was a voracious reader, so he he he, he built on what was known. Um, you know, he was a true scholar in that sense as well. But he he had such imagination and such mathematical skill, and um, was able to come up with all these extraordinary things. But he seemed to have been motivated by curiosity which also is a wonderful thing. He wasn't driven by fame because, as you say, Lower kept chiding him to publish. Mm-hmm. Why don't you publish? Give your friends the comfort they would have in knowing you know, that you'd done this wonderful stuff. Um, but he did, he did so many things that we haven't even began, began to um, look at, a, a quantitative study of population growth versus food <laughs> supply and really? so on. I mean, honestly, he, he just he was extraordinary. I, I thought um, several times reading the book that, um, the title is Thomas Harriet, A Life in Science. It's uh, published May 1st in the States uh, by Oxford University Press. But I thought several times it could, I, I, I think I prefer the title A Curious Mind. Um, yes, that's good. I like that. Yeah, because it, it's, so, it's, so, it's actually inspiring um, to, to contemplate his curiosity. It really is. Yeah, that's what, thank you. That's what I really uh, loved, you know, that this guy that just laboured away um, at, at great cost sometimes. I mean, you had mentioned about him being imprisoned and, and there's a very heartfelt letter. Um, this is around the gunpowder plot. He got caught up in all sorts of things. 
And he says, oh, you know, I just want to get back to my work. I've never wanted, you know, been a meddler in affairs of state. I just want to work in peace and freedom. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, he was he was wonderful, in both, it seems. Uh, yeah, we, we should, I mean, we should say he dies in 1621, uh, two years after Raleigh has been executed um, for, well, nothing much in particular um for yeah. being in the way really yeah um, yeah i think so the um northumberland has been in prison for most of that time as well with raleigh in yeah. the tower was harriet yeah. part of their little sort of society in the tower i'm mean, if you go to the tower of london you can see where raleigh's apartments and where he had a yeah his chemical la his chemical lab and all the rest of that stuff was harriet living That's in the right. tower sometimes with them or well how did that work i don't I don't believe he lived there, but he was on the list of special visitors who could okay. visit whenever they liked. <laughs> okay. So he certainly visited and, uh, you know, as you said, kept doing rallies accounts and obviously was, uh, you know, remained a friend to both of them. It, so, um, so it should be a sad, uh, it should be a sad to read about him uh, given that um, things ended badly. Well, Northumberland is released after Harriet dies. But yeah. that, that his patrons is, and, and friends are imprisoned and one has been executed and he doesn't publish and all the rest of that. Yeah, it's not sad at all. It's it's inspiring. Oh, that's great. I'm glad you felt that. And I think that's because he's been so fascinating to so to people that, uh, you know, so many scholars have, have, have taken it on themselves to, um, un, you know, understand, go through and study each each studying a separate um, area of expertise, and um, and and so I was able to draw on a lot of that as well as my own um, looking at the the manuscripts myself. But to draw on the scholarly individual studies and to try and bring it all together in a story for the for the general reader. Um, well, so yeah, Robert... and I think that's the that's the inspiring thing that you know his legacy. People are excited by him today, right now. They're mm. they're, in, they're they're exploring his manuscripts. So, you know, he's he's uh, he's been resurrected. <laughs> yeah, he has. Well, my guest today has been Robin Arianrod, and she's the author of Thomas Harriet: A Life in Science, which will be published uh, just as you are listening to this podcast. Robin, thank you so much for talking with me today. Oh, thanks so much, Al. It's been great. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.